So Money Episode 799, Dr. Daniel Crosby, author of The Behavioral Investor. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. When it comes to investing, you've probably heard the phrase, buy what you know. Do you believe it? I'm asking because today's guest believes that is, quote, profoundly dumb advice. (laughs) Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. I mean, I think that's sort of good advice. Buy what you know. Don't get into something you know nothing about, Bitcoin. But today's guest, Dr. Daniel Crosby, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He's a psychologist, behavioral finance expert, asset manager. He thinks that is not sound advice. He was last on my show, you might remember, on episode 453 about two years ago, but he's back with a new book. His book is called The Behavioral Investor. And in it, he examines the sociological, neurological, and psychological factors that influence our investment choices. He believes that, you know, we should first understand human nature and our own tendencies before making investment decisions. A little bit more about Daniel. He's a sought-after expert, frequent speaker, and he was named one of Investment News's 40 Under 40, and also a financial blogger you should be reading by AARP. We'll learn more about Daniel's philosophies around how to invest well, how to curb our emotions. And Daniel publishes this irrationality index. It's a measure of how much greed and fear is in the marketplace month to month. So we're going to find out. Here we are, October. How greedy are we this month? Here's Dr. Daniel Crosby. Dr. Daniel Crosby, welcome back to So Money. Thanks. Wonderful to be back. All right, got to ask you about this conventional wisdom, piece of conventional wisdom that you just don't like. You think it's baloney. Uh, Peter Lynch's strategy, buy what you know, which I heard a lot of people say, not just Peter Lynch, but it's become sort of this accepted mantra when it comes to investing. You think that's profoundly dumb advice. So should we be buying what we don't know? How does this work? Yeah, I mean, you actually should. So we're we're prone to a number of predictable biases, and one of them is sort of an adherence to the status quo, or confusing what we know with what's safe. You know, we tend uh, when we're confronted with a tough question, we tend tend to answer an easier question. So when we're voting for president, we don't say, uh, you know, who has a sophisticated foreign policy. Uh, we say, who would I like to have a beer with? And when we are uh, picking a stock or making an investment, we don't tend to say, you know, is this, uh, does this have a place in terms of risk adjusted returns in portfolio? We tend to ask questions like, have I heard of it? So what we see is, uh, for example, during the Greek debt crisis, Greek investors had over 90% of their wealth tied up in Greek companies. You know, Greece accounts for like 1% of the, the international equity market, but Greek investors had almost all of their money there. Even within the U.S., we see people in the Northeast tend to be overweight financial stocks. People in the Midwest tend to be overweight agriculture stocks. We see time and again uh, that people tend to vastly, vastly overweight their own company stock within their portfolios. 
And so, yeah, this is something we're already doing. We don't need nudges from billionaires to make us do this because we, we all already do this to our own detriment. It sounds like what's also not happening in those scenarios where whether you're living in Greece and you're putting all your money in the Greek economy or you're, uh, you know, working at a company and putting all your money in the company stock is you're not diversifying, which is not the same as buying what you don't know. But it's really another principle of investing, which I hope you still think is right. I think that's like that's still valid advice, right? You should diversify. <laughs> Oh, yeah, of course. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people know what this is, but they don't know what it looks like. Like we know we're supposed to diversify, but very, very consistently we'll see people with, you know, 10 different mutual funds of large cap uh, U.S. stocks. Well, that's that's not diversified. You might have 10 different mutual funds uh, and, you know, 200 different stocks, but they all kind of uh, fit the the same flavor profile. You know, another thing that you see people do, sometimes people with lots of wealth uh, will work with two different banks or two different advisors. And well, that's not necessarily diversifying either. So we need to make sure that we're diversified within and between asset classes. So within a given asset class, stocks, bonds, commodities, whatever, uh, you need to have a diverse set of holdings, but you need to also hold multiple asset classes that tend not to move in tandem with one another. And that's tricky to do and, and something that I think most people uh, don't have a very practical understanding of. Hmm. Well, we started off with some heavy hitting advice. And I think let's take a step back and, uh, you know, talk a little bit about how you've been over the last couple of years since we had you on the show back then, two years ago, you had just launched a book, The Laws of Wealth. And in the interim, you've become more interested in, in exploring human behavior and investing. What uh, brought you to this new book, this latest book, The Behavioral Investor? And uh, yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I want to catch up. So um, it's been a great, great couple of years. Uh, had, had another kid, which will hopefully be my oh, congratulations. last. congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, so had, you know, had a third and third and final child, uh, the, the laws of <laughs> the laws of wealth was named, uh, the best investment book of 2016. That was a huge honor. Wow. Um, and it was translated into six different languages. So wild, wildly successful book, thanks to appearances on, on this podcast of, among other things. Um, the thing that gave rise to the behavioral investor was, um, Anger was was frustration. You have rage too. Tell me it about your situation. Rage. Yeah, it was rage. This is a rage baby. So what what gave birth to the behavioral investor was being at a conference in San Francisco, and being on a panel with a number of sort of self styled investment coaches, and these would be, uh, you know, sort of coaches for day traders, so to speak. And um, being on this panel with these individuals and hearing some of the bulk wisdom and untruths that they were speaking about or sort of pop psychology or bad science. Um, I thought, you know what, there's still more work that needs to be done around, um, around the brain, around the body, around society, and how all of these externalities impinge on our ability to make good decisions. So yeah, this this new book was trying to cover some new ground and and also trying to set the record straight on some popular misconceptions like, you know, like the Peter Lynch thing of, of buy what you know. It sounds sensible, but it's actually 
uh, quite dumb when you understand uh, human psychology a bit. So what else gets under your nerve, gets under your skin? Like what else is your is a pet peeve of yours when it comes to this you know, pop science, conventional wisdom around money and investing? What else? Uh, one of the biggest ones is around emotion. And there's, there's actually a lot of nuance around emotion uh, as, as a variable when making financial decisions. And this was the particular frustration that, that got me going that day. Uh, but we see that on the one hand, emotion is necessary to make most decisions. When you look at people who have um, uh, damage to the emotional processing centers of their brain, they have difficulty making even very day-to-day decisions about, you know, what, what flavor of ice cream do I choose or, or, you know, what color suit do I wear? Because even very low stakes decisions have an emotional undercurrent that I don't think we always recognize. Um, and so because of this, some of these coaches and some of this folk wisdom will say, well, if, if emotion is part of most decisions that we make, then, you know, tapping into this emotional sort of sixth sense will be a form of investment alpha for you. This will be an inform uh, of investment outperformance. Uh, but, but every single study I could find nearly uh, points to the fact that uh, emotion is uh, at best, not very helpful when making investment decisions, and at worst, quite quite damaging. Um, so, in the book, I, you know, I talk about studies uh, that that I thought were fascinating, where we found that uh, bilingual people make better financial decisions when they are uh, thinking in their non-preferred language. So, if if you are uh, bilingual or trilingual, and you have an important financial decision to make reasoning through that in your non-dominant language actually causes you to slow down, be more deliberative, be less emotional. Uh, and as a result, these people made really good financial decisions relative to uh, people who are thinking and, and deciding in their dominant language because it, it mitigated their emotional response. Uh, another thing they found is that uh, these brain-damaged patients, while they weren't very good at picking out ice cream, they were they were very, very good um, at gambling and investing because they were emotionless. They just weighed probability. They looked at the numbers. They had no fear. They didn't get gun shy after a loss and they just kept at it. And so uh, I'm a big time believer uh, based on everything I've read that emotion uh, uh, is a sort of inevitable in, in all facets of life. But when it comes to financial decisions, it's it, you're much better off sort of mitigating your emotional response rather than tapping into it as sort of some mystical sixth sense and, and means of intuiting what to buy. So again, how do we mitigate it? Um, short of becoming brain damaged? Um, how do we how do we do this on our own? <laughs> When you learn a second language, no, um, the way, the, the way that you do it, um, a, a big means by which you do it is just by automating it. I mean, this is why, um, automating is incredible. It's, it allows you to, to set it and forget it. So you make the good decision one time, uh, and you never have to think about it again. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, one thing that you can do. The second thing you can do is to work with a professional who you select uh, among other things, based on their ability to, to keep your emotions in check. You know, I think 
you know, when you're looking for a good advisor, you want to look at their fees, you want to look at their ethics, but you also want to look at your connection with that person and ask yourself, you know, do I like them? Do I connect with them enough that I'm going to allow them to, to talk me off the edge? Um, another thing is to use a rules-based process to decision-making so that if things go sideways, you can blame the model instead of blaming yourself. Um, so all of these are sort of simple uh, but effective ways to, to manage emotion. What's your take on index funds? That's also something that we have adopted and it's become widely accepted as the way to invest, especially for people who don't have the interest or time um, in managing their own uh, stock moves. And and frankly, there's a lot of studies out there that say just passive investing, you know, it gets you to the finish line. Don't need to pay big bucks for someone to be going in there and making moves every day, every minute, day trading, forget it. Do you have a different philosophy on that? So uh, it must be said that index funds are the, the right choice for, for nearly everyone. And index funds are the right choice for, for everyone who just wants to worry about more important stuff. Um, you know, uh, one of the disadvantages of talking about money all the time is that in a very real sense, you get mired in all the, all the fear mongering and concern. Right. Uh, that's the enemy of good investing. So for people who want to set it and forget it, um, I think index funds are a wonderful choice. Now, um, in each of my last two books, I get a little more granular with this. And I tried to do it in such a way so that I would frustrate, uh, frustrate uh, proponents of both indexing and more active forms of management. I thought that was a, a fair way if everyone left upset and embittered, I felt like I had sort of done my job and that's, uh, that's what I shot for. So the, the longer answer is I think that indexing can be improved upon. And so what, you know, what we want to look at is the things that index, indexing does well. I think it uh, manages fees, uh, it's highly diversified, it's low turnover. So there are other ways to manage your fees, manage your turnover, uh, and get diversification that I think are probably slightly superior um, to just regular market cap index-based indexing. But if you don't care about finance, you could do much, much worse and not much better. Copy that. Oh, wow. All right. So now, Daniel, it is October, and I know that you and your team, you guys put out this irrationality index. Do you still do that? Yeah. All right. So uh, it's a sense, it's a, it basically measures um, the greed and fear in the marketplace from month to month. How are we doing in October or I guess well, maybe oh, September since you, since you last did it? Sure. So we, um, we put out two indices. One is around valuations of the, the broad U.S. stock market and one is around uh, irrationality, as, as you said. And so uh, in very recent terms, we have been um, both highly irrational and highly overvalued. So, <laughs> so it's not a, um, you know, we're on day, uh, whatever day it is, day four or five now of, uh, of some pretty choppy, pretty choppy markets. And so both, um, both the irrationality index uh, and the valuation index have been uh, in the top quintile for the last couple of uh, 
last couple of weeks. So this is where, again, no one, no one listening to this should go out and sell everything and, you know, buy guns and gold. But this is where we, this is where we start to worry a bit. Um, because there's, when both of these things are at play, it gets a little troublesome because valuations are expensive, um, by historical standards, uh, and things are getting a little choppier. Uh, and when we tend to see, uh, a lot of chop with some very steep valuations, like I believe we have today, uh, it's, it's kind of a recipe, uh, for, for bad things. But of course, those bad things only materialize about one time in three uh, when those conditions are met. So still, the safest thing to do um, is to just stay the course and let it ride. But uh, I mean, I'd I'd be lying to you if I thought we were going to get 10% a year equity returns for the next 10 years just because of how good things have been uh, for the last 10 years. You know, these things tend to, to level out over long periods of time. And so I think investors need to um, moderate their beliefs, need to steal themselves for a five to 10 year period of, of returns that haven't been what they've been for the last 10 years. And the tricky part about human nature is we tend to project the recent past into the future indefinitely. So if you ask someone, you know, in March of 2009, you know, what will the market look like five years from now? They'll say, well, it's probably just going to keep crashing um, because it had been crashing. Well, of course, it's done great. Um, and if you ask someone today when the market's been up about 15 percent a year for the last 10 years, you know, what will the market look like three or five years from now? I think they'd suggest that it'll still be um, blowing the roof off. And that's, you know, not impossible, but it's less likely to be the case. Right. And uh, I believe that's called recency bias. Is that right? Yeah, that, that is called recency bias. And, you know, in my last book, The Laws of Wealth, I, I tried to pinpoint the, the one phrase that's always true in investing. And I think the one thing that we can always say uh, in considering capital markets is this too shall pass. So whether you're going through something great or something horrible, uh, we know that it will pass. And part of being a great investor is, is having the mental toughness uh, to see it through the, the best and worst of times. Daniel, last you were on this podcast was two years ago, episode 453. So listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Daniel's personal money beliefs, his personal money wins and losses, it's all there, episode 453. But I do want to ask you one personal question while we have you on the second time here. And it's uh, with our sponsor in mind, Chase Slate, who was a great sponsor of this show. And we thought it'd be fun for the month of October to ask guests to describe their scariest, because it's Halloween almost, money moment. So my scariest money moment, anytime I'm asked about my dumbest decision or scariest decision, it is uh, that the house the house from which I'm currently addressing you is my is my dumbest is really? my dumbest. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, and you live in Georgia, in Atlanta. Georgia. Okay. Uh-huh. So yeah, this is gonna fall on deaf ears to to the New Yorker. But um, 
Yeah, we we bought a home. We wanted to move to a bigger market. I, I'm from Alabama originally, and my wife, uh, who is from Connecticut, was very good-natured about living in my hometown for, for six years. Um, but we wanted to move to a bigger market, better airport. Um, and so we we bought a big, you know, big, expensive, by Georgia standards, uh, house without having sold um, our house in Alabama, which I mean, we could like we we could afford it. It was fine. Um, but keeping up two houses and uh, the the upkeep, the hassle, we rent out that second house, but like the upkeep, the hassle, the unexpected expenses, the taxes that we didn't fully consider, um, all of it has sucked. I mean, it's just been, uh, I, I want to say the only thing it's ever done good for our finances is, is it's cured me of, of my former desire to have a vacation home. So, um, having, you know, having two houses, uh, and thinking that a house will make you happy, you know, thinking that a house is, is gonna really sort of material, materially change your life. Is probably my scariest moment and my dumbest decision, uh, a decision, incidentally, that ignored pages and pages of my own writing and research. <laughs> so here we go. Another bit of conventional wisdom that ownership is the path to wealth, home ownership. And I think that's uh, some people are adamant about that through experience and others like yourself are like, eh, not so sure about that through experience. Would you go back in time? and rent? Or would you sell the second home? And how would you do things differently? Uh, I would definitely, um, I would definitely sell the the first home before before buying a second home. Now we've, we've ended up renting it out because the, the market there has been soft. And it's I mean, it's okay, we, we make a little money on it each year. Uh, but but the amount of money that we make relative to the pain in the neck that it is, is is uh, out of out of whack. Right. So I think people need to understand a couple of things about houses because there's a couple of behavioral things that we get wrong about houses pretty consistently. Um, one of them is that we fall prey to the money illusion. You know, uh, Robert Schiller looked at a hundred years uh, of American housing uh, uh, improvements and appreciations, and he found that housing appreciates about at the same rate as inflation. So, you know, about two and a half, three percent a year. Uh, but the people that he surveyed expected their house to appreciate at 13% a year. So people think a house is a great investment. It's really not. Like it's a it's a good place to stash money um, if you're worried you're going to touch it otherwise. But that's about it. Uh, most most houses, you know, outside of perhaps San Francisco and, and Manhattan, um, just you know, they're just not great investments historically. And so the second thing I think people need to understand is that they engage in something called the money illusion. Like we hear the story about grandma buying her house for $100,000 and, you know, selling it 25 years later for, for $500,000. And we go, wow, you know, grandma, uh, you know, grandma hit a five bagger on her uh, investment. <laughs> but, but we don't. Never put grandma and five bagger in the same sentence again. Yes. Okay. That's my advice That's to you. These are good. This is good life advice. Um, 
But yeah, we don't account for, you know, we don't account for the opportunity costs. We don't account for the taxes. We don't account for the upgrades and, you know, the new sinks and the leaky, you know, the leaky ceiling. And um, we just don't account for all this stuff because when it's all said and done, uh, houses are, are not, by and large, a good investment. Um, and the, you know, the final thing is, uh, people think that a home will, will change their lives. We, the first time we walked through this home, which is, um, you know, a, be- a beautiful home, the, the first time we walked through it, we were just, you know, blown away at how stunning it was. And now it's just, you know, it's where I throw my dirty socks and where my kids leave their toys on the floor. It's just, you know, it's just my house. It's just the backdrop against which you live your life. So it's human nature to get used to whatever situation you're in. Uh, so your house very, very quickly just becomes the scene against which your, uh, you know, the backdrop against which your life plays out. And it's not a great source of uh, investment return or, or for that matter, happiness. Well, I don't know. I think I, I get the investment return for most of the country. I can see where it is iffy. Uh, I love being a homeowner for the fear. I just redesigned our dining room. I continue to find a lot of pleasure in the upkeep of the home. Not so much, you know, the maintenance, but sprucing things up, remodeling, um, you know, changing up my kids' bedrooms as they get older because now they need like, you know, a different configuration. And, um, I feel very proud of the home that we have. And I think that, uh, you are true. It's true to an point. Like this is the first time I've actually felt this way. I've owned homes in the past and, you know, my studio apartment when I was in my twenties was just a backdrop because I was working so much. I barely used the kitchen. I basically went there to shower and sleep. Um, but I, I work from home now. So I find new and more meaningful, um, experiences in being a homeowner. And so for that reason, I'm way attached to my house, really attached to it. And uh, that said, I'm constantly looking at real estate listings because that's just me. But I think that it is a personal, hopefully you can have that emotional attachment because it's, it's a great thing um, to feel that way. I will be the first to admit. Well, I've, I've perhaps been overly negative. I mean, I, I love our house too. I think it's, you know, we'll, we'll lump it in with the, what I'll call the move to California uh, you know, the, the move to California sentiment, you know, a lot of people go, well, you know, my life would just be a little bit better if I, if I lived in California, you know, the weather would be better, it'd be sunnier, whatever. And then, you know, we find that people who move to California, uh, you know, are about as happy as they were in, in Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because wherever you go, there you are. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, so a house is lovely and I have great memories of, of my family and my, my house here provides me a, a safe and a quiet place to work and be on Farnoosh's podcast. So that's all good stuff. Um, but it's just not a panacea, I guess, is what I would say. Mm. Yeah, it's not a trip around the world. Um, sure. But that's kind of human nature, right? Do you, is that is it human nature? I'm guessing here that we are uh, easily dissatisfied or eventually dissatisfied or, or there's a diminishing return on most things that we arrive at, accumulate, purchase. What does money, does, can money actually lead to any sort of happiness? There was a study that recently came out that said it can, despite all other studies. Where do you, where, where are we right now on that money happiness continuum? 
Yeah. So I've read that and all, you know, all the, all the studies on money and happiness. And the best way that I can summarize it is to say that money can buy the absence of sadness. Um, I think that's what most of the research points to, because if you have to live in a dangerous neighborhood or you can't, you know, pay for your surgery or you can't buy nutritious food, like that is actively bad. Like that's going to actively bring uh, sadness and diminished quality of life uh, to you. Now, once those things are covered, like once you have a, you know, uh, a safe place to live and a, you know, a roof over your head and food in your belly, um, money's kind of done its job at that point. And the rest is, is more or less up to us. And there are increasing, there is increasing quality of life with, with more money. It just drops off very dramatically after a relatively low number around $75,000, So people who make $750,000, um, are uh, happier than people who make $75,000 a year, but they're not a ton happier. So the, the best thing that money can do is keep you safe, warm, dry, and fed, uh, and then after that, the rest is up to you. And it's going to have a great deal to do with your, um, your, your choices and your relationships. Agreed. I just tweeted because I'm a good multitasker. What you just said that money can buy the absence of happiness or absence of sadness. That's a really interesting way to look at it. But you're right. It can pay for these necessities that we need, the basic life necessities. And from there, it's really about human choice. You know, how you spend your money after that. Um, as long, I think the, the, the trick is to, is to afford the stuff that does align with what you actually desire and value. And, and that sounds like it's a no brainer, but a lot of us have no idea what our values are. Yeah, that there's actually cool research around that as well that showed that money could buy happiness if it's around, uh, exactly what you said, your values. I had forgotten about that study. You know, they would give people personality tests. Uh, and see, you know, who are you? What's important to you? What do you value? And if you spend money uh, around the things that are most important to you, uh, then it can buy happiness. You know, my birthday is next week. And I always ask my wife to get me a, a project. So this year, she's getting me all of these books and notebooks and journals and pens and things around writing fiction, because that's something um, I really want to do. So it's, you know, a little money that will buy me a lot of happiness because it'll be a new, a new project for me. And I just took a six week comedy course. It was $500 and it continues to be the thing I look most forward to, um, practicing, writing, performing, people asking me about it. It's nice to have something to talk with to people about that has nothing to do with money. <laughs> yes. You know, and makes me feel like I'm really doing this whole life thing right because what's you need something outside of work and family you need an, a creative outlet and um, I, I feel a little late to it but it's better now than never it's it's on my bucket list as well and it's been my greatest frustration that your instagram stories have not shown the actual jokes They've just shown you on stage and I, I, I got to see the routine. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm also a marketer, Daniel, you gotta, <laughs> can't give you all gotta, the goods online. I gotta, gotta sell pay. tickets. Okay. There's I'll an economics to being a, a comedian. Like here's the economic situation. Like if you want to actually rise through up the, you know, the ranks, get stage time and 
Unfortunately, it doesn't really have a lot to do with how good you are. I mean, certainly if you're great, they can't wait to put you on the stage. But if you can bring friends, you're going to get stage time. And every amateur act I've been invited to perform at, they say to me, bring your peeps. Six to eight would be great. And sometimes they don't put you on the stage if you go there without a friend in the audience because they want to make money. And unfortunately, that's sort of how it works. Um, so, so you won't be seeing my jokes is what I'm saying for, well, I will fly up there to make it happen <laughs> in, in person. I have a couple of friends who I consider some of the smartest, funniest people I know online and seeing them do stand up comedy and between, uh, you know, the two of us just bomb, um, doing stand up comedy really gave me a sense for how difficult it is and, and what an art it is because these folks are extremely talented and very bright and seeing them struggle mm-hmm. on stage. It was, it was really, uh, yeah. it was really something. I have the reverse problem. I'm not smart or talented, but I I'm okay on a stage. Like I, I can just stand up there and talk. And if people are booing, like I'll just, I'll just stand there and I'll keep doing my act. So I have that. I have the reverse problem, which is uh, actually writing good material, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So hope to see you at a performance. And Daniel, congratulations on the latest book, The Behavioral Investor, also becoming a new dad. My goodness, you 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 get a lot done in two years. Yeah, I, I can't take much credit for the for the baby, but the books, uh, the books I'll claim. <laughs> Fair. Yes, your wife gets all the credit. I agree with that. That's right. Thank you so much and hope to have you back uh, when you've got a third book, well, a fourth book, right? You have, this is your third yeah, book or your fourth? Yeah, it's my third book. book. Yeah, it's my third book. So your fourth book and then your fourth baby, you can come back on the show. Fourth book, we're going to keep the babies we've got, but thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks so much to Dr. Daniel Crosby. You can learn more about his work at nocturnecapital.com. He's also on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. The book again is called The Behavioral Investor. It is available everywhere books are sold. If you missed any of this, you know the drill. Go to somoneypodcast.com, join our newsletter, get in on the email community. Lots of fun happening there. If you have a question for me for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, just click on Ask Farnoosh while you're there and either leave me a voicemail or, or drop me a note. You can also find me on Instagram, very active there. Get some behind the scenes, front of the scenes, and also answering your money questions there quite regularly. Hope to see you there at Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Hope your day is so money. Money.